Welcome to BachCast. This is the podcast that takes a piece by Johann Sebastian Bach in each episode, and we examine some interesting things about it, some interesting things about performance, and I tell you what my favorite performance of that work is and why. I'm your host, John Hendren, and in this episode, number 11, we look at Bach's Brandenburg Concerto, number 6. So in this episode, as you probably would have expected, I've been going back and forth examining the Brandenburg Concertos, and we had to end at some point. And uh, number six is probably the least well-known and probably uh, the least well-appreciated. It doesn't have any superstar solo instruments, for instance. Um, The violas, uh, two violas, no, no violins, are the... I guess you would say the main stars of this concerto. And what's interesting about it is that with no top end with the violins, this this concerto takes on a dark, rich, honey-toned type of flavor. Um, It's joined by a cello, uh, continuo, and two viola da gambas. Now, the viola da gamba is is a strange little instrument uh, that if you're not well-tuned to Baroque music or to the Baroque era, uh, it might seem strange if you actually actually were to look at it. Um, it it's about the same range, more or less, of a cello. But what makes it unique is that it has frets. And frets are something that we saw on a guitar. Um they were places that you knew where to put your fingers. Uh, however, unlike a modern guitar that kind of has the frets in a standardized place that, you know, the, the if it's metal, for instance, it's it's just set in the wood uh, neck of a, of a regular modern guitar. Uh, in this era, and this would be the same for the Baroque, cello, uh, the Baroque guitar itself or the, the lutes that had frets, the frets were actually kind of tied on and could be adjusted. And this was important. This was not just uh, primitive technology. Um, the need to move the frets was was a necessity because when you change tuning systems, you'd have to adjust to get the right intonation for certain notes of the scale. Um, beyond that, the viola da gamba uh, has more strings than a cello. Um, you, you'll find examples that where the number is not even standardized in some cases. And of course, the viol family is typically thought of as an older family of instruments, uh, in all kinds of ranges. Um, and if you think of late Renaissance music for viol consort, um, music by William Laws of England or, uh, William Byrd or, uh, Matthew Locke. Uh, these pieces were uh, written for a consort, so the, the instruments all kind of sounded of one voice, and um, it can be very interesting music. Uh, the other thing that's unique, I think, about playing a viola da gamba is that you you hold the bow in a different way, and so with all of that, it tends not to be a, um, 
as loud an instrument as the cello. It has maybe a more mellow tone, uh, perhaps more so than a cello. It, it goes to some higher registers. And of course, some of the, the best literature for this instrument as a solo instrument in this range would, would have come from the French Baroque uh, composers such as Marais, um, uh, Saint-Colombe, uh, who wrote viol or viol music. And the da Gamba part, um, de braccio, you may have heard that, viol de braccio, uh, that is sometimes the name for um, the arm viola, um, de braccio, and that could re- likely refers to the regular viola that, that plays a, a starring role in this concerto. The da Gamba piece uh, of the name, uh, of course, refers to the leg in Italian. And so Gamba is being leg. And, and like a Baroque cello, it, it does not have a, uh, a peg to go into the floor. So you're kind of supporting it with your legs. And you've got to imagine that in Bach's time, uh, as late Baroque composer, that, that writing for the viola da Gamba might have been seen as kind of old-fashioned. That's our perspective today. What's hard for us to put our minds into is what was actually the practice during Bach's time. And and did he view the instrument as an old instrument? And then you start to think, why did he choose this instrumentation? Um, If you remember, the Brandenburg concertos are a set of six, what we generally refer to as concerti grossi, uh, which means that you have a soloist or solo group against a larger orchestra and Bach has chosen in his set to vary the colors the sound world and the the flavor which it ends up being for each one of these concertos so unlike Corelli who published um, right after the 1700s or 1700 uh, his his magnum opus, the Opus Six collection of Concerti Grossi, you know, Corelli was dealing with just strings, and typically his concertino group, the the group of soloists, would be just two violins and a, maybe a cello uh, to emerge, and and that more or less was kind of a standard thing to have the first violin, the second violin, maybe one of the cellists as part of the continuo group, kind of emerge with with a little bit of a solo line. And these were quite unlike solo concertos in that the solos maybe weren't as difficult and it was just a way, no matter how many players you had in your orchestra, for the lead players to just kind of jump out of the texture. Um, Handel, of course, writes um, several collections of Concerti Grossi, his Opus 3 and Opus 6 collections. And it's easy to make parallels between... um, Handel's Opus 6, let's say, and Corelli's Opus 6. And, and he does the same thing, having the violins emerge. So in Bach's example here, number 6, it's not quite the same thing. We don't have this backup orchestra. We basically have this unique set of soloists. And you got to scratch your head and say, what was he thinking? Just in the same way, maybe we look at number 2, trumpet, oboe, recorder, violin, why that combination? Um, Number three, he basically writes a string concerto. 
And in number four, he he calls for this weird instrument called the um, echo flutes. Um, and then in number five, we get this kind of more or less standard, maybe even modern French uh, concerto that's very forward-looking and having the violin, a transverse flute, and then he gives this, of course, solo to the to the harpsichord. But number six almost seems to look backwards. And I've never read a really good explanation of why maybe Bach chose this um, this instrumentation. And one of the reasons may be that um, he was simply choosing a, a sound. Um, that's hard for me to necessarily accept because I don't think Bach was a, such a composer. I think he was very pragmatic, number one. And so when I talk pragmatic, what I'm saying is if you're writing something and you've got a good bassoonist, then you write a bassoon concerto. Uh, if you've got a good violinist, you, then you write good violin music that's uh, virtuosic and will, will make waves and impress the audience. So this could be one of those very pragmatic decisions. Well, I've got some viola da gamba players and violists, and we're going to do it that way. Um, I don't think Bach necessarily chose instruments for the just for the general sound quality. He seemed to be more choosy. Um, he, he seemed to choose instruments that represented things. Um, for instance, if you, if you look at his use of the viola d'amore, um, excuse me, not the viola d'amore, the oboe d'amore, um, the kind of low-pitched, if, if you will, tenor oboe, uh, he tends to use that in his cantatas in consistent ways, and it, it plays a part which, which when you look at the the text, might say, eh, he's kind of he's using that instrument to represent something." There have been commentators that, for instance, have pulled out and say, "Well, he he features the viola da gamba in similar ways through cantatas, so it's it's representing a value or an emotion." But this is just kind of an interesting combination. I go back to Philip Pickett, and Philip Pickett, uh, when he led the New London Consort, they came out with a version of the Brandenburg Concertos on the Loiseau-Lier label, and while it was um, generally well-regarded for the time, I don't think it's really stayed the test of time. Uh, in general, the tempos were on the slow side, some of the interpretive uh, nuances in it were on the conservative side, which... Uh, some commentators, including myself, have, have kind of dubbed that English sound from the late 80s and, and 90s. Um, it's, it's not a bad recording, but it really doesn't push too many envelopes. But what made it so unique, and it's probably the only recording like this that I can think of on the top of my head, it was unique for the, for the liner notes, the little booklet that came with it. Because in there, Philip Pickett, outlaid some really novel ideas about what these concertos might actually be about. And he tried to make the case that this was program music and there were stories behind each of the concertos. And Pickett's idea for number six was the quick and the dead. And this idea that you were walking along a road 
and you would you would it was a contest between living and dying. And for him, um, really pulling, I've not read it recently, so I'm pulling from my memory. The viola da gamas represent death. Um, there's references to death uh, dancing, and so they have this you know kind of jaunty way about them. And the violas are the young folks who are going to be tricked maybe into dying, but they need to overcome that. Uh, a riddle may be uh, applied to them as they're walking down the road. Um, and I'm going to stop there because I don't really remember the, the parable or the, the story that well. But he, he has a story behind this. And to me, it's the most compelling type of um, explanation for why Bach may have put these instruments together. And we could all be, of course, completely wrong. He could have just, like, as I said earlier, the tone colors, the, the darker, richer sound by these instruments. But if you look at how there's sort of the action between the instruments, if you actually look at the score, and of course with any of these pieces, even if you're not a, uh, an, an avid musician and, and can read music really well, um, if you follow the score, it'll, it'll tell you some things, and it will, you can almost train your ear in a way about what to hear, and some things that you may have not noticed orally uh, kind of stand out on the page and, and might um, bring something out for you. So this, again, is Brandenburger Chair number six. This is the last of, of, the, of the collection. And in the opening, I, I gave you a little taste of the first movement, and that was performed by the Academy of Ancient Music. They've recorded it twice, and that was their second recording under the leadership of Richard Egar. Um, I had the opportunity to hear the Academy with Igar performing all Brandenburg Concertos uh, several years ago. Uh, I actually bought that CD there at the concert, and uh, I actually got Igar to sign some, uh, actually an older recording, which was really cool. Uh, it's great to see the Academy up close and in person. Um, they've come twice here, at least the, the ones I've uh, attended here in Virginia, in the United States. So I um, always love when some of your favorite ensembles come across the ocean, if that's where they're from, and, and decide to treat us to some concerts. And obviously Bach's Brandenburg Chairs would be a great draw for, for big numbers of audience. What I want to do in this podcast um, is lead up to, obviously, which is a, a play that I've done before, to my favorite recording of this concerto. And I'm going to... I'm gonna, use the basis of what makes it my favorite, the first movement. The first movement is probably the least understood from my perspective. It's the least uh, familiar of all of them. Uh, Bach writes, for instance, in the second movement, this most delicious um, piece of music where it... it um, I'm not sure I want to go there or not. Let's, let's see. I've not planned this out to this degree. Um, the second movement is this nice little dialogue and there's this thing in it that appears almost near the end that I call the honey chord. Um, when you land on it, it's something that you would savor. Um, I've often thought of it as if you're opening a box of chocolates, uh, one of those boxes that has different kinds of chocolates. 
it's that chocolate you've been saving to the end of the box, your favorite one. You know it's like a caramel in it or something, and or maybe the biggest one. And when that cord comes, it's like plopping that, that last, the sweetest, the most treasured chocolate in your mouth, and you want to savor it. Um, if you don't feel that as a, as a human being or as a performer, um, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be sappy. I'm going to be overly romantic, whatever you want to call it. But if I was performing this piece, or if I was the director of the ensemble, you've got to slow down and just acknowledge this is the landing point. This is the most beautiful moment in this slow movement. And because it has this kind of honey chord, uh, it, it, it tends to be my favorite of all the slow movements in the Brandenburgs. Um, and actually, I'm not going to play it for you. I'm going to skip the second movement altogether. You've got to find it. What bothers me, however, is that some ensembles don't slow down for it. They don't savor it. They just mm, they play it, and they, and they end, end the phrase, and that's the end of the movement. Um, it, it really is the reason for the whole movement. It's, it's all leading to that kind of special spot. I guess it reminds me, too, of some paintings where um, maybe something like Fragonard, uh, the French painter who's obviously a little later than the Baroque era, but uh, he would paint these scenes where everybody's, you know, having a good time, and they'd typically be like in a forest or in a, near a pond or something. Or, and the scene just looked like the perfect little secret place to hang out and have a good time. That's what this... That's what the treat is in, in number two. In number three, it's kind of a jig. And there's a, it's a fun one, and you know, you tap your foot to it, you've got to be smiling during it. And it's kind of a celebration, if you will. And of course, Pickett would probably tell us, well, that's the the joy of the quick over uh, winning out and and surviving uh, some uh, riddle that the death gave us, and we we beat death, and so we're just joyous about that. Um, it's just so hard not to think of the story he puts in there. Um, I would love to read it to you. Right now, all my recordings, all my CDs are sealed in boxes. It would be almost impossible for me to find it. So... Uh, I apologize. That's that's as good as the story's going to get that, that Pickett left us. Uh, you might be able to search online, and I can do that for you as well, and see if see if those notes have been published online. Um, but I want to look at movement number one because I think a lot of interpreters get it kind of wrong. They don't quite get the right rhythm with it. And the interpretation, I think, many times is too slow. So you've got the opening kind of feel by the Academy of Ancient Music. This is what I might call the Academy 2.0. This is, you know, not under Hogwoods, this is under Egar. They're perhaps a little more um, invigorated with trying to do some exciting things for the modern audience of today. And that was their reading. I would say it wasn't slow, it wasn't overly fast, uh, probably compared to the Academy's first recording under Hogwood, it is a little faster. The other thing to note that they do is they, they recorded a lower pitch 
Um, that has been something that has appeared in some recordings. Um, recording at a French pitch or 392 for the A instead of 415, which is more standard for Baroque recordings. Um, to say nothing of what actually happened at the Baroque era. But altogether, they have a kind of a rich sound. And Igar is willing to, to kind of beef up the continuo department. Um, and one of the interesting things they add to the mix is Theorbo. Um, we really don't have any evidence uh, through Bach's time and where he was that the, a large lute would have been used as a continuo instrument. But he's got William Carter, a great lutenist, uh, in his orchestra. And uh, even when I heard them live, Carter was there. And there were a couple of times he you know, twanged out some of those really deep bass notes. And uh, it gave just kind of a neat richness to the sound. So it is a recording I, I recommend maybe you check out. And it's available in Super Audio CD if you are... Uh, so equipped to play those it's just kind of a, a bonus i think and that was under the harmonia mundi label uh, and the front cover has got a spiraling staircase so the next one i'm going to play for you since i mentioned picket is the new london consort just so you get a kind of maybe uh, an earlier generation uh, take on an english ensemble and what's interesting about this one for me is that it features Pablo Beznozuik, who is a performer in the Academy of Music. And it also features uh, Richard Egar in this recording by the New London Consort. So this is, to me, to my modern ears, who, of course, I've born in the 20th century, and now we're in the 21st, it almost sounds like a texture piece, like something you might expect from uh, Philip Glass or, or Steve Reich. It's the same harmony. It's It's... It's just, you know, it's just playing that triad. Uh, I believe this piece is what, B-flat major? It, it, it's just playing that sound over again, and we get this texture. And then it builds up, and then there's something, and then the chord changes. This is kind of unique for Bach, if that's in fact the way it's supposed to be played. Now, I ended just at the spot where things get a little more interesting, the opening kind of ritornello uh, ends, and we get some uh, solo passages between the two viola parts. Um, and in this recording, I just should just 
point out, I guess, um, uh, Catherine McIntosh is the uh, is this is one of the violists, and she of course was the leader of the first Academy of Ancient Music. So, um, if, if your history of uh, English Baroque ensembles, if you've actually paid attention to who's in them, uh, there's a lot of uh, players uh, recycled amongst these ensembles, and so it's it's not unusual. What's interesting to me is when you do that is is how the interpretations differ. And in this one, to me, what sticks out is just this idea of we're in, here's a chord, here's sort of this texture, this, all these different parts, the, the notes are moving, but we're not getting a lot of melody until we allow the violas to kind of sing on their own when they, when they break out of that full ensemble texture. So that's that's what my reading of this one, which can be interesting, but if you've been listening to Bach with me, it's just a little unusual. So uh, as a point of comparison, uh, let's listen to the um, the ensemble Caprice. This is directed... Um, this is a Canadian group directed by Matthias Mauté. Mauté is a flute player, and in their their recording, which has come out in 2012, this is probably the most recent Brandenburg set I've purchased, um, which tells you why did you buy another one. Uh, this one really stuck out to me as I was sampling the tracks. This one is kind of a cool... Cool interpretations. They've they've taken some liberties. They've been trying to do some unique things here. And this number, what they do in it, which is the most unique from a marketing standpoint, is they interleave their Brandenburg Concerto readings with uh, Shostakovich pieces, which um, of course is not a Baroque composer, but they they take Shostakovich's um, just a few of his twenty four Preludes and Fugues for piano which, of course, he modeled after Bach, and they are kind of interleaving them between the different Brandenburg chairs, or kind of maybe think of, them, think of them as palate cleansers. And they've, of course, rearranged these. They're not playing them on piano. They're playing them on the Baroque orchestra, uh, so they're kind of recreations. Um, you can certainly program your computer or your CD player to not play those if that's jarring, but uh, it gives you a slightly... Uh, unique perspective, and their playing in general has been um, really good. Let's listen to their version of BWV 1051, the first movement. So, big contrast, right? Really fast comparison to what we just heard. And what you kind of, what sticks out to me is not the violas, although they're easily heard. Uh, it's what they're doing in the continuum, right? They're they're trying to lead up to those, those harmonic changes. Um, it almost seems like they need like a drum kit in there to even add more uh, to what they're trying to do there. 
So interesting comparison. Uh, and I'm letting it play here in the background so you just kind of get a sense of, of what happens with, with the rest of the texture as, as the attention or the spotlight goes to the violas. Uh, I'm going to turn it back up and then we'll listen to yet another example of how uh, uh, historically informed uh, ensemble uh, performs uh, numbers, the opening of number six. So altogether, I would characterize their performance as kind of rustic. Um, they've recorded it in a, in a church, I believe, and it has a very um, a resonant, uh, you get a lot of reverb in there, um, which isn't typical of a lot of historically informed recordings, um, which just makes it, again, an interesting uh Interesting as an interpretation, I guess, on, on having a recording, just to have that different, uh, liver, more wet sound to the, to the acoustic. Um, but they do take on this kind of fervor and, and rustic uh, quality to the playing, which is kind of fun. Um, I don't think they get it quite right, but I appreciate them kind of kicking up the tempo a little bit because I think... Uh, I don't think it's very Bach-like to to play this one slow. I just don't think it works in terms of the sort of what I would call harmonic rhythm. And of course, rhythm in music is is the thing you clap to or the thing you can tap your foot to, right? Um, whereas melody is is the song you sing, and harmony is the is when you take the top of the score and go down to the bottom. It's basically the chords um, that emerge out of the music. And when I say rhythmic, the rhythm of the harmony, uh, basically what I'm talking about is how quickly harmony changes. Um, for those of you who, who are not musicians, this can be a, a concept, maybe hard to understand, but um, it's easy to hear. If we were to take a Bach chorale, uh, Bach has over 300 surviving chorales that he wrote, and a chorale is a vocal piece. It's typically written in four parts, soprano, alto, tenor, and bass, and it's set to a text. And many times the Bach, the text, the melody um, of the text is actually an older tune that he has adapted, and so it is sometimes hidden within the texture in the tenor line. It can be in the soprano line. Uh, he may decide to play around with it and put it in different lines because that's what Bach did. He was a contrapuntalist. Um, but if you take a Bach chorale, basically each note, if you were to kind of follow the pulse and use a lot of them are in 4-4, four, four, um, each quarter note in those measures would be a different chord if you were to analyze it. And so the rhythmic the harmonic rhythm is basically every quarter note. And if you take a lot of his other concertos that we've been listening to in the Brandenburg series, for instance, the harmony changes at a much faster rate than it does in, in this number six. 
Um, there are words for this. It's we'd say if we were a music theorist, we might say, well, he's kind of just he's sitting on the tonic, which is the which is the home key of a of a piece of music. Um, he's just kind of sitting there, just marinating in that and slowly changing. We'd call that a slow uh, harmonic rhythm. And there's nothing wrong with that. He can do that. And no matter what, how we play it, that that's kind of going to be there. We're not really changing the notes when we play it. We're just playing it in different ways, which I think, because it's unusual, it deserves a faster tempo. I'm going to get to one more example before I give you my favorite. And um, this example is from uh, one of the recordings that I've previously kind of called out as one of my favorites, uh, at least for a different concerto. This is the Concerto Italiano, and they recorded their Brandenburg set on the, uh, I guess on the naive label, um, Ronaldo Alessandrini is, is the conductor or the director, and he plays a harpsichord. So this is their version of number six, the opening. So their their recording is is pretty lockstep in terms of tempo with the uh, Canadian ensemble uh, that we heard before. And what's different is they're a little more refined, I think. Uh, we don't get quite that rustic quality that I think uh, was evident in um, Ensemble Caprice's uh, version. And for me, my ears, it's a little easier to hear all the voices in this recording. And the continuo, the, especially the harpsichord and uh, whatnot seem to be uh, less trying to bang out of the texture there, which I think goes along with that rustic quality. But the tempo is kind of the same. Um, and it's a fine recording. Each one of these recordings that you could probably go out and find are going to have some good points about them. And... Uh, that's not to say because I own a recording that I'm featuring it that it's necessarily the best. I'm not uh, of un unlimited means where I can purchase everything available out there and give it to you. But um, I would say listening over the years, uh, I'm kind of hand-selecting what I purchase, and I would recommend the same to you. If you really love a piece of music or a collection like this, the Six Brandenburg Concertos, you're likely to, re to collect uh, or or to appreciate over time the differences between the different recordings that are out there. And of course, this is one of those collections that is so popular that you, you likely would have an opportunity to hear it live, and that, that is always exciting as well. Um, I'm going to end this with a little taste. Um, I said I wouldn't do it, but I think I will. Give you a little taste of the end of the second movement. Um and give you a little taste of the third movement, uh, which is that jig I mentioned. And then I'll, I'll kind of fade out, um, tell you who it is, 
and then I'll give you the grand finale, their version of the first movement, which to my ears and to my sensibility uh, is the only ensemble that has gotten the first movement of this concerto right. So, end of the second, beginning of the third, then I'll tell you the big reveal of what my favorite version of Brandenburg number six is. Hear the confidence in the playing. That that is confidence. That is um, that is an ensemble at the at the peak of their technical and artistic ability. This is, as you may have imagined, if you've read my reviews of these concertos, this is uh, Musica Antigua Cone um, with Reinhard Gerbel, the director. He's also the first violist in this recording, and uh, there is nothing wrong with any of the six recordings, the six concerti in this release, which came out, I believe, in 86. Um, They have a number of artists in the ensemble that have gone on to be uh, leaders in their own right. And this was recorded well, the sound quality is great. And even though it it was recorded in the late 80s, it just still lives on as, as... uh, an excellent, an excellent uh, milestone that I think every other ensemble that goes to record this uh, collection has to compare themselves to. Um, which doesn't mean that there's nothing else to be said. These concerti, as you know, with Bach, there's tons that can be said in them. Um, but of all of the ones that they record, obviously number three, they do extremely well. They play it very fast and they play it technically, technically perfect. This one, um, the interpretation for the first movement, for me, was a revelation when I heard it because it, for me, it it all of a sudden made the most boring of the six Brandenburg concertos actually kind of stand up on its end, and all of a sudden it was interesting. And I realized that playing with harmonic rhythm, playing with tempo, could make a difference. And that's not to say that somebody else won't come out and do this better. But for right now, in in my view, uh, this is the strongest recording on record that I know of, of Bach's Sixth Brandenburg Concerto. So enjoy uh, the first movement. Again, this is on the came out on the archive production label with Musica Antiqua Colm.
want to thank you for listening to this episode of Bachcast. My name is John Hendren, and you can follow me on Twitter at Bieberfan, B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N. You'll also find more episodes of Bachcast and classical and Baroque music reviews at Bieberfan.org. <laughs>